and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of TIP, the Investment Integration Project, and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change in this current moment, lifting up the leaders, problem solvers, and bright minds, both in the U.S. and around the world, who can guide us to the next normal that we need. I'm delighted to be joined today by Renee Jaslin, the Principal and Managing Director of Philanthropy Unbound, a consulting services company focused on systemic change and a former colleague of mine from way back when. She has more than 20 years of experience designing collaborative approaches to advancing justice and equity around the world, with a focus on the development of co-investment strategies for optimal program implementation and impact. Welcome to The Reconstruction, Renee. Thank you so much, Monique. I'm so happy to be here. So let's begin at the beginning. Why did philanthropy need to be unbound and from what? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked that. You know, um, I've been talking about philanthropy unbound for way before I started the organization, which I started in 2011. Um, And it was because we hear all the time about philanthropy and we have this mainstream definition that's kind of been just part of our history, right? Like nobody really put it on us. It's just like, oh, philanthropy. What do you think of? You think of a Ford, you think of an OSF, you think of a Kellogg, but philanthropy really started on the every individual day basis, like people just helping people. And the root word, um, and actually the meaning of philanthropy is really love of humankind. And so philanthropy needs to be unbound from this like premise that we've put on it, that it's only mainstream large institutions that get to give love to humankind. So that's so we're unbounding the mind from this thought process. And so with Philanthropy Unbound, we work with institutions like that, right? Like so big philanthropy, we work with big philanthropy, but we also work with individuals who want to do work um, on the ground and serve people. And we also work with organizations that are providing direct services to people on the ground, right? Whether it be homeless organizations or organizations that work in social justice or climate change, we work with them too and and use what we call a co-investment strategy. And so that's investing either resources, monetary resources, or actually using your gifts and your talent and the work that you do in order to move mountains. Well, I agree then that philanthropy does need to be unbound from these ideas because we have, I think, a collective consciousness of what it means, and that is different. So is this the revised definition that is celebrated during Black Philanthropy Month, what Black Philanthropy Month, what I think a lot of people don't know that much about? And can you share a little bit of the origins of this month? And I think the 10th anniversary is this year, so that says a lot if, uh, if you've never heard about it before. Yeah, that is correct. So Black Philanthropy Month, actually, it's the month of August. Um, and it was actually started to celebrate all of the different forms of philanthropy that Black people are engaged in. Um, and so it includes um, giving circles, which is a b- big part of Black philanthropy and a part of the history of philanthropy, um, as well as folks who are in big philanthropy and in institutional philanthropy and also folks who are just individual philanthropists and giving money away. Um, and so that is part of the, the origin, the celebration of Black Philanthropy Month. And you're right, it started 10 years ago with Dr. Jacqueline Bouvier Copeland and the Pan-African Women's Network. 
it actually um, is a celebration of all the philanthropy that Black people do and going back to kind of like the origin story. So giving circles is a big, big part of the philanthropy they celebrate as well as individuals in institutional philanthropy and what they're doing to move dollars to Black communities. Well, you are the one who introduced me to the concept. And so I thank you for that because um, it was new to me a few years ago when you invited me to one of your events. Uh, and I'm so grateful that this, first of all, the month exists and we can celebrate these other dimensions of the definition uh, that's of philanthropy, which is more inclusive than I think the commonly accepted what's in the press version of what philanthropy exactly. is. Exactly. And thank you for being on that panel. I think that was like two years ago and you were the star, like everyone wanted to know more <laughs> about mission-related investment and what that means and, and supporting um, folks of color in that. So thank you for being part of the panel. And the principles that you leverage in your own work are reflected in some ways in Black Philanthropy Month. And when you think about what helped you to arrive at this concept that Black philanthropy needed to be unbound, and also that you could, with the skills and talents that you have, help others along in your advisory work. So could you share with us a little bit about your story? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in philanthropy, as you mentioned, for more than um, 20 years. And I've start, I have started actually in direct services. So I started at the Legal Aid Society actually doing fundraising for them. Um, and then when we were doing and building on the work that we were doing in, um, in legal aid, what we realized was we did a re- we had a study done, um, a capstone study, that actually we wanted to look at who we were serving. And when the study came back, we realized, first of all, that um, for every one client that we were taking in, and I was working in the civil division, so this wasn't even criminal cases, right? These were the the um, substance benefits cases, like homelessness, unemployment, housing, all of those. Out of all the cases that we took, one out of seven, we only took one out of seven, um, and that was the first point. And I was like, wow, so all these people, and we took thousands of cases, you know, a year. So it's all these people that weren't re- receiving services um, and didn't have the money because unlike criminal cases, in a civil case, you don't have the right to representation. So if legal aid isn't representing you, you're just not being represented. Um, but the second thing we notice is that 90% of our clients in the civil division, 85 to 90% were women and children. So it was like, so we now knew that the poverty, the face of poverty, right, were women and children. It's not something that we didn't already know. And I think we know inherently, but to see it on paper was different. And so I was like, how can I help to support? Like, I loved working in legal aid. We did great work. But it's like, how can I stop the women and children, right, and the other marginalized folks from getting to the point where they need legal assistance? Um, and so I started looking into where I can go, what I, what I can do to be of service in a bigger way. And that's when I fell into philanthropy. I just started job searching, right, to work in an organization that served women. And I ended up um, at the Ms. Foundation for Women, which was my first official job in philanthropy. And there I had the pleasure of wearing two hats. So I worked with the program team to actually help to decide on grants. Like I was part of like the decision making process with that. But my main responsibility was getting larger foundations to co-invest in the Men's Foundation so that we can re-grant to organizations that serve women. And so for many of the organizations that we served, 
that was their first grant. Um, and we did small grants. It was like five, ten, twenty thousand dollars. And the reason why Ms. is so important is that larger foundations tend to want to give larger grants, right? So they want to give like but the organizations that we were working with in the Ms. Foundation didn't necessarily have the capacity to hold all that money. So we would give the smaller grants, we would regrant and give the smaller grants. And then the whole, um, the way that the Ms. Foundation worked is that they were very much grantee partners. And that was also the first time I kind of started hearing that terminology, just not a receiver of the money, but actually a partner in decision-making and pulling resources together and making sure that the community has what they need. And so I just built from that, like that was an amazing experience. And then I ended up going at the, to the Ties Foundation after that to run their international um, women and girls program as well as uh, other programs, right? So I ended up doing holding some of the racial justice work, the disaster relief work, girls and women's work was always part of what I did. While I was at Tides, again, an amazing experience, an amazing experience. Um, but as we started talking more about the clients that we were serving, there were high net worth individuals, corporations, and foundations. I also saw the need that there weren't that necessarily that many people of color that were also being served in the spaces or other communities, right? Immigrant communities, and only not through the fault of tides at all, just that they didn't know about a tides, right? They didn't know, oh, we could do this, we can give this way, um, and so. I started working with giving circles while I was at Tides, talking more to them and how they actually give money. Um, Asian American um, communities also do a lot around giving circles. So started building that practice at the Tides Foundation and decided that, hey, this is something that I think is my space. Like I had to, do, I was doing that work and I loved it. And then I had to do all the other work too. And so it's like, I think I just want to focus on this. And so when I got the opportunity I just decided to start um, Philanthropy Unbound. That was in 2011, um, as I mentioned. And then I took a brief hiatus to work with the Clinton Foundation as a director of girls and women's integration for CGI. Um, And then I came back to it uh, in 2016. It's also about creating a community. And like I said in the beginning, this whole idea of like going back to the love of humanity as a definition of philanthropy, that's what I embody in the foundation. So working with um, not only foundations and philanthropists and corporations, but also working with direct service folks. So I do a lot of work with um, co-investments in helping nonprofit organizations to build their capacity and their strategies to actually do more on the ground and, um, and partner with other foundations or corporations or other organizations that could also support their work. But we, for some reason, have divided the grantee from the grantor and Philanthropy Unbound just aims to bring it all in because it's all, it's all supposed to be one big pot anyway. I love that weaving that you are doing um, in this work. And when you think back, you know, the world has changed fundamentally and dramatically since you founded the firm, but even just in the last 18 months, the pandemic, the racial reckoning that we've been undergoing here in the United States, the economic recession, this is fundamentally changed. Um, and how have those changes impact the way you work, what what you think we need now, and what has that revealed about the kinds of advisory services that you could and should be providing? Yeah, great question. So I would say, first of all, what it has enlightened for me is the fact that we're on the right track, right? Like being able to merge all of this together is actually the right thing to do. It shouldn't be the separation. That's um, the first thing. 
The second is that, you know, there have been three principles that have been um, going about in philanthropy for as long as I've been in philanthropy, right? So the past 20 years, they've always been like these three tenants that come seem to pop up like every five years or so, but they're not really um, worked on in the way, the diligent way that they're supposed to be, I think, right? Or that people intend them to be. It just falls by the wayside. And those are, um, number one, to always include the folks that you were serving in the decisions around um, the services. Number two is don't go in and just invest one year. It's like, oh, I'm going to give you a grant for $100,000 for 2020. And then you give me a bunch of reports, a bunch of interim reports, and then a final report. And then maybe I might fund you again after that, right? Because then the organization is just going through kind of like, doing services or um, recording services based on what they have to write for that report in hopes that they will get another dollar, right? And so if you invest with them for three years or so, then you can also help them with the plan. And and we really call it co-investment because it's also helped them with the strategy, maybe making introductions to other organizations that can support them, helping them to think through, maybe they need to think about individual giving, but really become a partner. So That was number two, just making sure that you're doing multi-year funding, at least three years, I would say. And then the third is that you provide that funding in general operating dollars. Because again, if you say to these organizations, I'm going to give you money for such and such program, then that program might get overfunded. Um, When your funding goes away, they might have to defund that program. And then it doesn't allow the organization to actually put the dollars where they most need them. So you're saying to them that you do not trust that they know what to do with the money that they're asking for. And so I believe that now with everything that's happening with um, the world just you know kind of blowing up on us all of a sudden, and then people being able to see what some folks, marginalized folks have been seeing for their <laughs> entire existence. Now all of a sudden people are having aha moments now, but what the, with, this, uh, these aha moments, the opportunity now is to say, oh, I need to invest differently. I need to pay attention. I need to make sure that what I'm doing is comprehensive and I need to make sure that it could actually support sustainable institutions and not just say, hey, I gave that organization a million dollars. So what? So what? Have you seen any notable folks um, out there beginning to embody this you know, newer way of work for some. And are there any leaders that you might point out? Um, I understand you have a way of assessing and tracking some of these front runners. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, a few, you know, um, that I think are really holding this in, in a way that's different and actually has big philanthropy looking at them differently. And so the first that comes to mind is Grantmakers for Girls of Color, G4GC, right? And it's a collective, right? a collaborative of different foundations um, that come together under the G4GC umbrella to support girls and gender expansive youth of color. And what they've done in their um, grant making, so they're brand spanking you. So they only became their own um, entity in, uh, I want to say, 2019. And so what they did from the beginning, so they decided they're going to have first like a learning opportunity, right? Because they, they started out, G4G started out as a place for grantors who were interested in learning more about the girls of color space 
and just wanting to share information and learn and convene. And now then it now transitioned into its own organization. And they planned on making this first year of it being its own organization. They planned on kind of doing a little bit more information gathering, a little bit more research and pulling things together. And then COVID happened. And so right away they pivoted and started the Love is Healing portfolio where they start giving grants to these organizations um, that serve girls and gender expensive youth of color, giving them the resources to actually do whatever they wanted, right? In this model of kind of, this is what you need, do what you need to do, send me the proposal, send me the report, but it's not like this kind of heaviness about it. Um, So that was great. The way they were able to pivot like that, the fact that they knew their core audience and what they wanted to do. And then they adopted the participatory grant-making model. So for every person that they gave a grant to, every organization they gave a grant to, they said, who else should we be giving money to? Who in this space should we know about? And they got hundreds of applications after that. And so I think this is something, and then they knew they were good because we know that if you're doing something, you're doing it well. And somebody asks, oh, who else is doing this? You don't want to mess up your brand by saying so-and-so and so-and-so ain't good, right? <laughs> so they made so they knew that if they were being recommended by an organization that was already stellar, that this organization was stellar. Of course, they did their due diligence and all of that. But it's just, you know, a different frame around philanthropy because most big philanthropy institutions go ahead and just kind of like decide, oh, write a proposal. I'm going to read this. And if the organization has a really great grant writer um, and something could turn a phrase properly, they sometimes might, I'm not saying all the time, have a leg up, right? Because then they could write it in a way that folks are used to reading, right? And so I think with G4GC being able to pivot in that way, it has a big lesson for philanthropy in general. So that's one organization. I would also say um, more philanthropy that um, is headed by Yvonne Moore is also an institution that has really changed the game around what philanthropy and investment in social justice looks like. So not only um, is Yvonne a philanthropic advisor and um, started more philanthropy to do that, she also has started like investment and impact strategies So now she has a fiscal sponsorship arm. So if you're an organization that needs fiscal sponsorship or you're a collaborative of donors that needs a place to put it, you can put it with more philanthropy. In addition, she also has um, the ability to provide you with a DAF, right? So if you're an individual or an organization that also wants to put money and then make sure that it's going out the correct way and all the tax, you know, everything that goes on with a DAF, um, then she can hold that as well. And that's changing the face because, again, she's holding it all in one place and all the investments that she makes, um, she makes sure are investments that are good for people of color and women. And that's part of the, her brand. And she's transparent about that. So those are those are two. And then if I could just throw in one more, <laughs> it would be um, AFI. So AFI, better known as the Association for Black Foundation Executives. But um, AFI supports... Um, I would say people of color, right? But it was founded on supporting Black people in the foundation world and just helping them to harness all of their power and who they are to make sure there's more 
money going on the ground to organizations that are Black-led and Black-focused. And you also have a method of curating who else is doing well or who is doing at least well in pockets. So as you think about what curating those folks does for changing the narrative around what does even a bar look like in terms of like good work, intersectional work, interdisciplinary work, work that it reflects racial equity goals and things like that. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I decided um, last year to pull together um, the philanthropy 100 list. What if we had a list that talked about how in all of these areas, there's really great philanthropy happening um, and pull together that as a marker, as opposed to the wealth, the income, the individual notoriety. Let's talk about the work. And so with Philanthropy 100, it's a list of 100 corporations, foundations, individuals, and nonprofits, 25 in each category, that have done great work in philanthropy um, for 2020 and before, right? So it's just not limited to 2020. So because this is the first time, I wanted to make it also expansive so that we could, you know, bring in as many as possible. Um, and so what's great about it is that in these, as we were curating the list, what we realized is that, of course, we had the unsung heroes, number one, so I highlighted some of those on the list. And then we had the foundations that were really doing good work. Uh, many people already knew about them. So we tried to pull in some foundations that folks didn't know that much about. But then, of course, we had to put the heavy hitters on there, too, that are actually investing in large ways, like Ford is actually investing in a large way, right? So wanted to make sure that they were on the list. But then every category had its own kind of logic, right? So for foundations, it was around money given, um, investment strategies, partnering with organizations. That's that's how you got on that 25. For individuals, it's like you're making your mark on the world in a certain way and didn't have to be resources. Many of them, it wasn't about writing a check. It was about I, um, I'm helping my community. I'm helping to build a grocery store. I'm helping to make sure that children are going to school. There's a youth committee. We're feeding kids. Um, this is we're feeding kids through COVID-19. We're making sure that we have a learning center in our home. Like all of those things that, again, is philanthropy. And that's like the category that we looked at for our individuals. For nonprofit organizations, again, it was like the work they were doing on the ground and how they were affecting people. And we looked a lot at community and neighborhoods um, and not just like those big organizations that we hear about that are doing national work, but what's going on in the individual community. Because we know just like um, all politics is local, philanthropy is local. And so that's what we, why we focused on that. And then for corporations, it wasn't just, oh, we signed on to this pledge to give a million dollars to Black lives. Um, and so, yay, recognize us. It was like, no. Um, what are you actually doing? How are you sustaining the money that you're giving? Like, you know, sustain the conversation around the money. How are you really investing? Are you bringing people together to have a, a conversation about the work that you're doing and about the work that you're funding? Um, is there a bigger plan beyond this current reckoning? Uh, do you have a bigger like investment strategy? And then we put on the list those corporations that actually include in their business model philanthropy. Like those are the organizations I also really looked for. So 
for example, Bombas um, is on the list and Bombas is a sock company, right? And they just like, we make socks, we give socks. We, um, we pay for, you pay us and we give you socks. Um, we sell socks, I guess that's what I was looking for. <laughs> we sell socks. Um, and then, but we also give away socks, right? And we give away socks to the homeless because we heard that the, what we were told when we went asking was that the socks were the number one requested item in a homeless shelter. Right. So we built that into our business model. So working with an organization like Bombas um, or putting an organization like Bombas on the list, Eat Okra, right, a company that we also have on the list. Eat Okra is an app. And what you with Eat Okra, it's wherever you go and whatever. I think they're all in in all 50 states right now. I might not. They might not be, but they're close. If not, Um, you could go onto the app and find out what black owned restaurants are in the city that you're in. And so, you know, to and you can put in like what type of food you're looking for, right? But they'll give you a list of the black owned restaurants in the community. What does that have to do with philanthropy? Well, going back to the original definition, right? It's economic independence for those um, communities that now have more people frequenting their restaurants, their eateries, their food trucks, all of that. And so that's, that's building. And so we have Eat Okra on the list. Um, because of their work. We're also now pulling together a list for 2021. The 2021 list is gonna be based on mostly nominations. Who else can we look to to find more insight and inspiration? Because this work towards justice is difficult and we need to endure for the long haul. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So I would say first and foremost, you can go to um, Abfi. I think they're a great resource as far as who you should be looking at to fund what are the organizations, just resources in general about, they do a lot of research around what's happening in community and um, and just writing up multiple white papers on kind of like what's happening and where you should fund and who you should be speaking with. Um, G4GC, same way, a lot of great information that's provided there that you can learn from and get. Um, Tides is really great. What's really great about Tides is that it is like the philanthropic advisory services. And then they're also an advocacy arm to Tides as well as a fiscal sponsorship arm. And so they tend to have a lot of organizations that they're working with and a lot of information on how you can get um, different resources and access different information. What is one characteristic our next normal must have if we're gonna be successful in moving capital towards justice and unbinding philanthropy and really getting it right. Yeah. I would say it goes back to the first, the three pillars that I mentioned of kind of like where philanthropy needs to go and just focus on that first one, right? Making sure that those most affected affected are part of the conversation and a part of the building. Don't assume that you know what people need and how people should be um, addressing their needs or how they should be building, ask first, build around that and make it a lot easier for them to actually access the resources that they need. And as we think about where we are today, it is because we are living in the ancestral imagination of others as so aptly written by Adrienne Marie Brown in her book, Emergent Strategy. So what do you think we need to do now in order to be good ancestors today? <laughs> that's that's a tougher one, right? Um, 
so I feel like to be good ancestors, we need to remove, and this is tough because it's tough for me, um, we need to remove self from the equation, right? And so in order to do that, it's like, what is the best thing for the folks outside of me, right? What's going to make a better humanity? <laughs> What's, and how are we going to make that happen? And then sometimes when we, when we think about it, we think about like, oh, I would be better off if this happens. But if we start thinking about, oh, what it would make my child, my grandchild, my great-grandchild better off, or even if you don't have children, what would make society better off? What would I like to see a um, hundred years from now? And by using that as kind of the impetus for moving forward, I think it, we get a better idea of where we should move and how we should move, right? So this idea of we didn't inherit the land and where we are from our um, from our parents, we borrowed it from our children, and being able to look that. And I believe that, and I believe that's a Native American quote. So I didn't come up with that. Wish I did. Um, <laughs> but I remember reading something similar, and I might have botched it, but I remember seeing that somewhere. So I'm paraphrasing, but then it hit me, right? It was like, yeah, that's right. I didn't get this. Like this wasn't, this isn't a privilege of mine that I just, you know, I got this and I could do whatever I want. It's like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to be using this lifetime to make it better for the people after you. And so if you focus less on self and more so on what would make it better, however many years from now, I think will make us um, good or better ancestors. We must be good stewards. We must be. We must be good stewards. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on the Reconstructions today. It's always energizing to speak with you. And you can learn more about Renee and what her team are up to and the upcoming series at philanthropyunbound.com. Thank you so much, Monique. I really appreciate being on this platform and um, sharing what Philanthropy Unbound is doing. And I look to you to learn more about what's happening as well. So thank you. The Reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth Davies, Anjali Deshmukh, and Carrie Hansen, with thanks to Dr. Julian Marcel. We benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. To send us your favorite quote or ideas for future guests who you think represent the principles of the Reconstruction, email us at tr@impactalpha.com. Impact Alpha's editor is David Bang, and our producer is Isaac Sill. Special thanks to Lainika Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the dash reconstruction and sign up for a mailing list to, ne- to learn when new episodes are released. The Reconstruction Podcast is free of charge, but it's powered by Impact Alpha subscribers. Join us, impactalpha.com slash subscribe. And today's quote was given to us by our guest, Renee Jaslin. She cites Bob Marley. Some people are so poor, all they have is money.